Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talk Junkies, where tonight's going to be a very interesting night, and I say that because it absolutely is going to be a very interesting night. I'm very excited to have the uh, guest on tonight because this is something that's kind of, uh, it kind of, minus zeitgeist, which kind of got me into the conspiracy realm. Uh, originally, when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old, um, one of the first things that I dabbled into whenever it came to the YouTube game and just me going down that rabbit hole was just the moon landing conspiracy. I was very fascinated with the dark side of the moon. I wanted to know about the universe and all of those things. But then little did I realize that there was a lot of stuff, go a lot of stuff going on. So anyways, um, th this is kind of where it branches out to. But anyways, check out last week's podcast real quick. If uh, just got to mention it, we had Dr. John Uron talking about uh, some COVID stuff and just vaccines and stuff like that. So if you're interested in that type of stuff, check back to last week's podcast with Dr. John Uh I've got Johnny, Jesse in the house. How are you guys doing? Good. I mean, you did those backwards. Yeah, I was about good. to say those backwards, but yeah, yeah. My bad, doing my bad. We got, we got the crew in the house tonight. But anyways, we have a gentleman who's written a book. He's in the process. He's already written the second book. Um, it's having some issues getting shipped, but he's here anyways tonight to talk about a hoax hidden in plain sight with the fake moon landing conspiracy. Randy Walsh, how you doing, my man? Good, I'm doing good. Uh, nice to be here. Finally connected. Uh, Paul, Jesse, and Johnny. So, yeah, happy to be here. Fantastic, man. So what started you on your journey to kind of write these two books? Um, it's very interesting stuff. It, it, it's very impactful, honestly, because this is something on a very large scale of magnitude that it affects a whole society. And I know that we're going to get into that, but how did you get to the point where you are right now, my man? Yeah, so actually, very interesting story. And, you know, I was old enough, actually, young enough to remember, old enough, actually, at a very early age, to actually watch Apollo 11 launch live in school. And, you know, I think I was in grade four or five or something at that time. And I remember the excitement around it. So, I mean, I grew up believing in the Apollo missions. It was, for me back then, it was an inspiring um, venture, to say the least. And I mean, that in part led to my um, interest in aviation, right? So that I was able to pursue a career in that. But I think it happened about just over 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, I happened to, I came in one night from work and I just switched on the TV as I usually do. That's what you do back then. And it happened to be a documentary on the Apollo missions. And I wasn't really paying a lot of attention to it. And eventually I realized that they were talking about Apollo 13 because they were talking about the supposed accident that happened on the way to the moon. And they were talking about the slingshot effect around the, the backside of the moon. And for those that don't know what that is, that's gravity assist. So they of course had an explosion of the service module on the way there. And they had to used the moon's gravity to swing behind the moon and then get them back to earth. So Jim Lovell, the commander was talking in the documentary about that experience. And when they came out from the dark side of the moon, and for those of you who know, the dark side of the moon back then in the 1970s, that was a famous Pink Floyd album, right? Yeah, great album. So, yeah. So um, anyway, he was talking about firing the engine and the importance of, keeping the earth within a grid pattern on the window, a lunar module window. Now, and I remember him specifically saying that, 
And he was, you know, and the way he was talking in the context, he was saying, well, you know, I was telling, make sure when I fire the engine, you have the moon within the grid pattern of the earth. Because remember, they had all kinds of system failures from the explosion on a service module. I remember my first thought was that's a very precarious way of navigating 240,000 miles away from the earth. I mean, you're talking, if you're off by 0.01%, um, you're going to be thousands of miles off course. And I remember thinking, how would they have the propellant to correct for that? So there was all kinds of things that were starting to sort of resonate with me in terms of that uh, statement that he had made. And, uh, you know, and I didn't give it much thought, but I remember it lingered with me for a while. And I think it was a, a few years later when I sort of delved back into it. And of course, with the onset back then in the early 2000s, when the internet really took off and YouTube videos were coming out and there was a lot of um, videos and literature coming out about the Apollo moon hoax, as well as a lot of other stuff. But now, you know, a lot more people had access to this information. And that sort of, you know, I got back into it and looked into it. And I remember, I never forgot Jim Lovell's comment about keeping the earth within a grid pattern. Now, think about this for a second. We're talking um, a distance of 240,000 miles away from earth. And you're using visual cues to keep the earth within a grid pattern. Um, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. You need precise navigation. And that's really what set me on my journey years later. And I think it was about 10 years ago when I really, really delved into this and I started ordering books and I NASA reports and I really delved into it. And long story short, five years later, that's what led to my first book. Fantastic, man. Well, there's a lot of questions that we got to get into. I don't know if you guys have any real quick off the bat. Oh, one thing that comes to my mind, I never thought about the Apollo 13 being a conspiracy theory. So that that's what you're talking about directly. Because I've always um, talked about like the moon, the actual like moon landing uh, experience or the moon landing being being faked. But you're even talking about whenever um, they had all the system failures and weren't didn't get to land on the moon. We've all seen the Tom Hanks movie, too. That's probably <laughs> my biggest reference to that. And I love Tom Hanks. But uh, so you're even saying that 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 was uh, faked as well or a hoax. Yeah. And there's different um, there's different theories around Apollo 13. I mean, if you if you just stand back and look at it from a from a commonsensical point of view, if you have an explosion in space, that's a very serious situation. And they had, you know, I think it was an oxygen tank explosion or some incident um, on the service module in Apollo 13 on the on, on the way to the moon. And from all the research that I've done so far, I realized that this actually may was was not planned. Actually, this 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 was sort of an afterthought after they had supposedly lost Apollo thirteen. There's some evidence now that Apollo thirteen was supposed to land at a certain area. It was Fra Mauro, which is the area on the moon it was supposed to land, but that they had got their calculations mixed up uh, or got them wrong. And if they had carried on with the plan according to and this is in the context of the official version, okay. Um, we, I, I know now it's fiction, but just in the context of the official version, they would have landed on the um, dark side of the Terminator, which, which is, you know, between light, sunlight and dark. 
And they could not have done that. All the missions supposedly landed in the sunlight. They, they didn't have lighting capabilities to be landing in the dark. And I mean, that would have been insane to even try that if these missions were even attempted. So it seems to me that, and I wrote about this in the first book, that they were on the way there, realized, oh, they screwed up because it wouldn't take long for even back then for some, you know, um, some whiz, you know, sitting in his classroom with some high IQ would figure out, well, wait a minute, I did the calculations and you're landing in the dark side, that's impossible. So there's a theory that they came up with the explosion of Apollo 13 to throw that off get rid of that possible scenario and that avoided them having to, again, within the official narrative, land on the dark side of the moon. And so they proceeded from there. So then it became a whole sort of, you know, dramatic uh, movie in and of itself and the whole world was paying attention. Now, the other theory is, is that by that time, by, by the time they lost Apollo 13, um, people's interest was waning. And they come up with that idea to sort of get people's interest back. Because remember back then, I mean, I remember that moment um, when, you know, the whole world was watching, um, you know, to see if the Apollo 13 crew were going to get back safely. I mean, they even interrupted, um, for, those, for those of you that out there, the viewers are watching, Harold Cosell, who was narrating at that time um, a football game. He interrupted the football game to talk about Apollo 13 coming back and, you know, the whole world is with you. Please pray for them and, and so on and so forth. So it became a very, um, how shall I say, all-consuming uh, story for the world. And it, it held on. It held the world's grip for, for quite a few few weeks, at least after that. So that's another theory. So there are a few theories floating around out there. As it turns out, um, if these missions had already happened, they might have actually landed on the, if they had proceeded with the Apollo 13 mission, they would have landed on the light, the sunlight side of the Terminator. But even then, that would have been precarious because that gets into all kinds of, you know, it's very close to the Terminator and then you would have light shadows and you'd have, that wasn't practiced for in terms of the landings. When you, you think about what goes into uh, preparing for something like this and the complexity involved, the amount of training, they have to plan for every contingency. And throughout my own research, I mean, the sloppiness that was involved in this, just in the training aspect alone, says a lot. Too much to go into here right now. But anyway, I just wanted to put that out there that there was a couple of theories. So yes, Apollo 13 became part of the, uh, the deception. Well, all of the Apollo missions were but Apollo 13 became the sort of pivotal moment for um, the Apollo missions. And if you think about this, even though Apollo 13 was technically a failure because they didn't land on the moon, it was actually turned into a success because they brought the crew back safely. And that, of course, led to Tom Hanks' movie, as a, or sorry, Ron Howard's movie, rather, which came out in 1995. So yeah, it is part of the deception. There's no doubt about that. And there's other aspects of that now that came into involving Apollo 13. And I want to add, and, and I'm not, I don't focus a lot on numbers here. Um, that's been written about, but it's very interesting that the launch happened at 13, 1300 hours and that the explosion happened, depending on your, your, uh, your position on the earth, geographically speaking, at 1300 hours. So there's a lot of 13s involved. I just thought I'd throw that's that weird. out. I, don't, I, don't, I was going to say, I don't get interest. into like numerology a lot and stuff. That would interest Paul, though, for yeah. sure. He gets yeah. into that kind of stuff. 
and I don't either, but it is a matter of interest. And I know there's a lot of people out there that have an interest in that. So it is something to look about. I mean, when you look at all of Apollo 13 has everything. I mean, it has all the parameters It has, you know, it has the numerology, it has the, uh, the excitement, the drama, it had everything. And it just, you know, That's it brought back interest in the Apollo missions, which was basically pretty well near its end anyway, because as I said earlier, the public support for that was waning and, you know, funding was, uh, was being you know, seriously reduced for the Apollo missions, which led to the cancellation of a couple of Apollo missions that never happened. So, yes. So I would say, of course, as part of the deception actually really helped that in kind terms of, of the deception. That kind of brings me into my question about motive. And we've always talked about, we've talked about plenty of conspiracy theories and different things here on this podcast. And one of the big things is always motive. And I have said as far as it goes, um, and not talking about Apollo 13 now, just talking about the actual moon landing in 69, um, about how there actually is a motive there. There was a reason, you know, beat the Russians, moral support, all this different stuff. There was reasoning there. And my thing is, as far as going, you're talking about all the Apollo missions. So now ignoring the moon landing and just talking about, for example, Apollo 13, what is the motive behind the conspiracy what is the reasoning for like you talk about them getting more funding and stuff well if they're not actually doing the missions if these are quote unquote faked what is that what is the reason for the funding what is the funding going towards just what is the motive to continue the like you said interest is waning people did not care much care as much about nasa or the apollo missions but if it was all fake in the first place what is the you know what i'm getting at like why Why it's like a means to like why do it if it's fake in the first place kind of thing? What are they trying to achieve there? Yeah, no, exactly. Just give me a second here. <clears throat> well, I used to think, you know, in the early days when researching this, that you know it was kind of Russians versus Americans, and you know it was this race to the moon. I now know that that's just nonsense. Uh, it goes deeper than that. It, it goes darker than that. Um, this is not. This was not to, you know, any concern on the part of the American hierarchy versus the Soviet hierarchy at that time. This goes deeper than that. This is about influencing their, their, their respective populations, you know, um, out, you know, this is the height of the Cold War period. And the Cold War period for me was nothing but a form of control. And to me, this is how the Apollo missions in part, not in and of itself, but in part fits in with that narrative of control, you know, controlling their people, motivating them in any way. And there isn't one clear answer to this. There's many, many, many different answers, but it fits in with the deception that I also think was part of the Cold War. I mean, it's interesting to note, too, that um, the Russians, of course, in their um, uh, space program to the moon, and they had, um, I think it was Luna eight, if I'm not mistaken, in 1968, they send up uh, a Russian craft to the moon and back, and they put some animals on the moon, some tortoises, some mammals, actually, including some tortoises. And when that, uh, and by the way, uh, this particular um, Russian craft was capable of carrying, I believe, two cosmonauts. And when that when that ship came back and they opened it up inside, they immediately canceled their manned space program. Now, there's all, all kinds of sort of other official reasons as to why they did that. But that program itself was canceled. And then, of course, the rest is history in 1969 when the Americans went. 
But to answer your question, there isn't one clear cut answer for that. It's about deception, yes. It's about maybe um, you know funding, yes. It's about di- diverting those funds to black op projects, yes. I mean, there are um, a variety of reasons, but I think one of the main reasons was the psychological effect that it had on people. You know, motivating them, motivating Americans. We are the best. This is the Nas- nationalist pride super- and yeah, everything like uh, that. Uh, okay. Absolutely. But that, again, in and of itself, uh, wouldn't do it. That's just part of an ongoing program that really went on for the last several decades. So I call it sort of uh, mass programming on a huge scale and not just for the uh, United States, uh, uh, you know, but for all of North America and all of the rest of the world as well. And I have to say, and I know this may sound a little bit far fetched. But there's evidence now that the Russians were were not only fully aware of it, they were in some ways complicit. So this goes very deep, goes very dark. And I think now in the last year and a half, we're seeing just from, you know, um, from things that have happened, circumstances that we're involved in right now, we're seeing how deep and dark this actually goes. So the Apollo moon missions on itself is... It doesn't really hold up, but when you put it in with everything else, you know, the JFK assassination, the Martin Luther King Jr. assassinations, um, you know, the Apollo Moon missions, 9-11, you know, what's going on the last year and a half, you have to put it all together. And it's a lot to absorb. I mean, it really is a lot for the average person to absorb because it really conflicts with their um, preconceived notion of reality is, but um, I hope that that's some semblance of an answer because this this is a subject that can go on for hours. Yeah, I, I hope I sort of when you talk yeah. of, when you talk yeah. about reality, that's the thing that hits me the most because one of the first things that I learn uh, in kindergarten is just that we go to space, like we went to space, and it's just it's it's instant programming. At least for me, when I look back at my um, preconceived reality. Um, in that time, like those are the, the things that you learn. And then when, as you get older, you figure out that, Hey, we went to the moon and you're like, well, how did we do it? Like that's, yeah. it, that that's insane. And, and for me, and, and you said it in, in Randy, whenever you were talking is like a financial aspect, what is it like $60 million or $6 million per day that NASA receives in tax money? It's something crazy, the amount of money that they get per day. So to me, that's a motive right there in itself. Yeah, so I mean, especially if you're able to like filter that into other things that we, you know, the public would not approve. Right. Like you said, maybe just like programs we don't even know about, but they're just secretly funneling it into NASA and they're just getting it, it's in the millions per day per tax pun, taxpayer money that they get, which is insane. You know what I'm saying? But I, I guess my, my original question is in, in the first place, what's the motive to even say that we went to the moon? I know like we wake up in the morning, we see the moon every, you know, or in, at not, not wake up, sorry. At night, you see the moon and you see it every single night. And so is everyone who's lived on this earth. And of course, why would we not want to go there? So eventually you have a government that's not really trustworthy and they're going to create this program to say, hey, we're going to go there. And you know what I'm saying? And since yep. and, and since then, and since all, what is it, 11 or 12, uh, allegedly 11 or 12 times that we went, I can't remember ex- exactly how many times we went, but it's been nothing but excuses since then. Yeah. And to me, that doesn't make any sense. There's been videos of people who say, we lost the technology. That's why we can never go back. Yeah. Obviously, I haven't heard that part. The, I've never heard that. There's been a NASA spokesperson who came out, and this was recently, a couple of years ago, and they're like, they asked him a specific question, why have we not went back to the moon? And he's like, well, we can't because we lost the technology. Yeah, actually, um, that particular point you're talking about was um, 
a former uh, astronaut. I think he was either, I think he was um, part of the International Space Station. And I have the quote here in my book. I'll find it later. But basically what he said was, um, and I'm going to paraphrase here, I would go to the moon in a nanosecond, but we can't because we destroyed that technology. Um, that was a pretty low statement. You see, the, the thing to remember is, and, and of course, a lot of the NASA proponents will jump on that and defend it and say, well, you know, it's this and this and this, but what they're actually doing is giving you some truth. So they're, they're taking a limited hangout. They're actually telling you and they tell you. And if you look over the last several decades, they tell you in movies, they tell you in books that they actually, that they actually fake the, the, the Apollo moon missions, but you really have to get into the details of this. And I mean, the nitty gritty details in order to find this out. And then once in a while, you'll have an astronaut that comes along um, and I'll find his name later. Um, it's in my book, but uh, I didn't mark it out. But he actually, um, I believe, was one of the astronauts that went to the ISS, if I'm not mistaken, either the space shuttle or the ISS. And that was a very, very interesting statement that he made. And I think that's NASA's way of indirectly saying, hey, wink, wink, we didn't go, but we fooled you. And it's very difficult to convince people they've been fooled. And we see that uh, abundantly up until the last year or so, because that's actually starting to change. People's perceptions are starting to change. But for an astronaut to make a statement like that, first of all, you'd have to have permission. You can't just make a statement like that without permission. NASA controls every aspect of this, right? And we've seen that with the behavior of the Apollo astronauts. I mean, you had Neil Armstrong, who was the first man to walk on the moon, supposedly the first man to walk on the uh, lunar surface. And he all but went into seclusion for the last 50 years. Um, he resigned his commission when he came back. Um, he was a university professor. He barely gave any interviews. And when he did, he maybe came out once a year, maybe once every two years. And when he gave an interview, it was choreographed and scripted. He was very careful about what um, he, he, he said and when he said it. So you just have to look at the, the behavior. You want a direct answer to your question. It's very difficult to say, but you have to go outside of that and then work your way in. Just look at the behavior. And, you know, um, when you look at the behavior and then it, it's because it raises more questions. So when you ask that question, it leads to other questions. So it's, so it's a very it's a very interesting rabbit hole to go down. For, for instance, like for me, like watching Joe Rogan, uh, this kind of what Joe Rogan kind of. Granted, I will say that Talk Junkie started podcasting before Joe Rogan. At least Jesse and I. News Radio eight one six. What? What? Wait, yeah, <laughs> wait. That was way. We we did, man. We Jesse and I were doing podcasts a long time ago before Joe Rogan was doing yep. it. He may have been doing, it. but anyways, um, I got into Joe Rogan, and and he was very um, kind of got me. He was super hard on the moon landing conspiracy, really, really extremely hard. And for some reason, he had Neil deGrasse Tyson on. And once he had Neil deGrasse Tyson on, his views changed on the moon landing. And yeah. a lot of Joe's points were valid. They were very, inf uh, a lot of information coming at you. Like we lost the telemetry data in the first moon landings. They're gone. They don't exist anymore. The first time we ever went to the moon, you can't find any of that data for some reason. And like Joe Rogan spoke a lot of different points that were very interesting and intriguing. Neil deGrasse Tyson comes on. And now Joe Rogan's like, yeah, we went to the moon. I'm an idiot for a even ever suggesting that we never went to the moon. Um, so, I mean, that kind of plays into the question as well. How did, I mean, you have influencers like that, like Joe Rogan, who has 10 million followers on his podcast. Yeah. They're not going to allow him to say, Hey, it was all fake. So they instantly yeah. get someone who is a 
uh, an expert like Neil deGrasse Tyson and say, yeah, this is legit. This is how it happened. You can't question science. We went there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. First of all, I don't take Neil, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson seriously at all. I just, I just don't, I, I don't take, um, scientists seriously. He's what I call a celebrity scientist. Yep. Um, they write books and there's nothing wrong writing books. I wrote two, uh, not really criticizing for that, but he writes books and sensationalizes it. And he comes up with catchphrases on his book, you know, learn this in 15 minutes. And, um, uh, I mean, he's just, um, he, he's like, to me, he's just the mainstream media celebrity scientist type, right? He's there. His function is to put that, that deception forward and to keep people within that, that way of thinking that deception. Now, as for Joe Rogan, I saw him, I heard him on a debate with another scientist who's pro NASA and his name escapes me right now. Joe Rogan demolished him. Yep. I mean, he just, he came out with all these points, one right after the other. Joe Rogan doesn't have much of a scientific background, but he has intelligence. He's smart. He has the ability to connect the dots. And he did just that. And he demolished the scientist and he had nothing at all to come back with. There may be a variety of reasons why Joe Rogan had changed. I don't know. Maybe it's because he, got, he has a lot of light on him right now and he has 10 million viewers. Um, Probably you know, money, right? It. I was going to say money Money kind of skews all. Money you turning know, the world, you exactly, know. Exactly. And let's face it, the YouTube uh, format, if I can say this, is, is it's, it's a controlled forum. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, you're just, you know, not going to get anywhere at YouTube unless YouTube allows you to. And, and um, it maybe could be argued in a sense that Joe Rogan sold out. I don't know. Um, I like some of the things he has to say, um, especially um, within a framework of the last year and a half. Um, I have followed him a little bit on that. And he does raise some good points. I, I, I know you probably don't want to get into that because that, that can get you <laughs> blocked on YouTube, right? But um, so I don't know. Uh, and I don't follow him that much to know. But yeah, something went on there. I mean, even one of his um, counterparts, one of his co-hosts actually sort of made an under under his breath remark about Joe Rogan while he was on the air with Joe Rogan. He says, now, you know, now you're defending an Apollo. You know, last year you were criticizing it. So, you know, what's going on here? That was Eddie Bravo. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so you know, I, I just I. I tend not to take them too seriously. Um, you know, um, when it comes to people like um, Joe Rogan to point and especially uh, DeGrasse Tyson, I don't take him seriously at all. Um, I've listened to Tyson. I would debate him anytime. I mean, I really would. I mean, he's a scientist. I'm not, um, but he has no common sense. I do. And uh, I'm, I'm assuming most of your viewers as well have the same common sense. These people are not, they read a script. They have some science background, but they're more celebrity than they are scientists, if I can put it that way. Let's get, and I agree, let's get into like just your opinion on the first time that we landed on the moon. And what are the discrepancies that you see? And do you write about it in your book about just the obvious yeah. things that are just blatant to the naked eye that people can refer to or, or whatever type of evidence that you have? Yeah, well, so basically the premise of my first book was the Saturn V rocket itself. I just started, why not start at the ground, work your way up, right? Um, there's been a lot of discrepancies talked about the moon in terms of the photographic and film record. Um, I don't go into that a lot in book one. I do touch on it a little bit in book two. 
And I actually wrote an appendix where I put a, um, some of the work of some um, other researchers I've been following um, in book two, and I highlight their research because it is, it is worth knowing about. The reason why I don't get into a lot of the photographic and film record is I, I just happen to believe it's a red herring because uh, NASA has an excuse for um, everything. And I think it's a trap. I stay away from that because one of the things that we need to keep in mind with the Apollo missions is that they were controlled. It was a military control. It was a military project, even though NASA um, is a civilian agency. Um, all of the personnel, the upper echelons of power, the upper echelons of management, all of the astronauts, I think except one, were all military pilots. So they're under military rule. So they do what the military tells them to do. And the other thing to remember about the film uh, record of the Apollo missions is that the military at that time, and probably still does today, had the biggest, the sort of largest um, film studios in the world. And he also had the most sophisticated uh, and still classified to this very day um, photographic and film techniques. And we've all heard about Stanley Kubrick's involvement, possible involvement in the Apollo missions. I don't know if that's true or not. I do think that there were some technical experts very close to him that worked with him on his own films that may have been involved and Stanley Kubrick may have had some involvement in filming the Apollo missions. I don't know for sure. Nobody does. Isn't it true though? That, one thing I do know. Isn't it true though that sorry, they, did, they did have a backup plan? I don't know if this is like public knowledge that if they weren't able to actually go to the moon, they were able to actually do it on a set. Cause I, I think that information is public that they were able to do it on a set to say that they were yeah. able to actually do yeah. it, do it in like a movie type scenario. Yeah, well, they actually built um, a replica of the Apollo landing moon set at Flagstaggs, Arizona. It's like, I think it was something like two square miles. And they actually, and they did all the practicing there. And the fact the American Geological Survey um, actually filmed every aspect of that. And so there's, there's the, I mean, they had that technology even back then to actually film this, if they, and which they did, of course, obviously do, because we've seen the films. And they actually had replicas built of um, in the uh, sets. And I'll um, just briefly, uh, there was, um, there's a researcher I talk about in book two, his name is Scott Henderson here in Canada, um, not far from where I am. And he, um, he has been able to, he's proven um, through his research. And what he did was really amazing. He spent 10 years after retirement downloading NASA's entire photographic and film record. And he was able to um, determine that the, the last three missions that used the rover on the moon, um, he was able to determine that it was the same rover used three times. I mean, it's just remarkable the, 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 the amount of things that he's been able to uncover. Like recent rovers? Research. Recent rovers? Yeah. They, okay. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the buggy, the moon buggy? Yeah. Yeah, that they rode around on. Yep. Which, you know, on the, on the lunar surface was a joke. Yeah. So he was able to determine that they were using the same rover, which is impossible um, because they never brought those rovers back, right? They supposedly left them there on the lunar surface. They couldn't bring them back, right? So, um, so there's all kinds of, and, and, and another anomaly I, uh, I'll briefly touch on with him, he has discovered that when he 
and researchers discover something that's um, an anomaly in a particular photo, um, NASA cleans it up in the record. And so when you go back, you don't find that anomaly anymore. So NASA's constantly updating its its photographic record. So it makes it very difficult to, to research this and say, ha ha, I found this. And NASA comes back and says, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. We did, because here it is, right? So what I looked at in my book, in book one, was the technical, was the technology part of the Apollo mission, starting with the Saturn V rocket. And so before, before I get into that, what I'll do is, is I'll briefly give a description on the Saturn V rocket for the viewers, because it's been 50 years. And then I'll, I'll narrow in on exactly what I'm talking about in terms of the rocket itself. Is that okay? Yeah. 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 So the Saturn V rocket, basically, um, for people that don't know, it, is, um, it was um, a three-stage rocket. as 363 feet tall. And it um, weighed 3,000 to- uh, 3, tons, uh, fully loaded with propellant. Okay. So as I said, it had three stages. The first stage had the five powerful F1 engines. Then the second stage had five J2 engines, less powerful. And then the third stage had one J2 engine. So it's the first stage of the Saturn V that I really concentrate on in the book because the first stage has the all-powerful F1 engines. It's the F1 engines that were needed to lift the payload for a moon landing off the launch pad and basically propel it to a high enough altitude to then propel it further to get it into orbit. So those F1 engines, the five of them, had to work perfectly. And there has been no engine before or since liquid, uh, that is, let me qualify that for a second. Um, There has been no liquid fueled engine um, built before or after that is as powerful. So the F1 engine is, is a real um, significant part of the Apollo program because if they did not work and produce the amount of power that they, the amount of thrust that was necessary, that voids the whole missions. They just don't work. So with the, uh, give me an example of the power of these F1 engines. So one F1 engine, to give you an example, uh, a lot of the engines used in, there was, there was actually two Saturn rockets. There was the Saturn 1B and there was the Saturn 5. The Saturn 5 was the rocket that was used to send missions to the moon. The Saturn 1B, which is a smaller version of the Saturn rocket, was used for low Earth orbit. Okay. The Saturn 1, um, the Saturn 1 rocket had two stages. Its first stage used eight H1 engines, which is a less powerful engine. Each one of those engines produced about 200 pounds of thrust. So you had a combined total of about a million pounds, just over a million pounds of thrust to lift the Saturn 1B um, off launch pad and then eventually into low Earth orbit. To put that in perspective, the Saturn 5, again, which is used to send missions to the moon, um, each one of the F1 engines produced 1.5 million pounds of thrust. That's one engine for a combined thrust of 7.5 million pounds of thrust. It is the most powerful engine ever built and it hasn't been done since, right? So this was really, really new technology. I mean, they were really pushing the limits with this F1 engine. They needed that amount of power to get the 46 to 50 ton payload into orbit and the 40 to 50 ton payload included 
the Apollo command module, the service uh, module, and the lunar module. Okay, so combined, that's about 50 tons. And you needed this amount of power, 7.5 million pounds of thrust, to lift that rocket, the Saturn V, off the launch pad um, to a high enough altitude where then it could be jettisoned and then the second stage would kick over and boost it into a higher orbit. So if those F-1 engines, if there was any fault in any one of those F-1 engines on launch, the mission was over. It didn't have the power. There was, there was no room for error here. There was, there was no margin of error. There was no room at all. And they were having major problems with the technology involved in making the F-1 engines. Right now, I'm, I'm just going to go into a little bit of description here about the F1 engine, and then I'll talk about what the problems were and what I wrote about in my book. So I'm just going to give a very basic um, design uh, explanation of the F1 engine. So in any rocket, you have what is um, you have you know you have the propellant on top, then you have the uh, fuel injector, and then you have the combustion chamber, and below the combustion chamber you have the throat area, which is the narrow part you see in the rocket nozzle, and then of course you have the nozzle out the end of the rocket. Okay, it's pretty basic. The fuel is pumped through the fuel injector into the combustion chamber where you have in the combustion chamber a controlled explosion. And the temperatures in that combustion chamber can reach up to 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So you have to find a way to cool that combustion chamber down while that controlled explosion is going on. Because if you can't cool that down, you're going to have a distortion of the combustion chamber itself. And eventually that's going to lead to a massive explosion of the rocket engine. And, and, and you have a loss of the rocket and the crew. Okay, so they were having major problems with the cooling system involved to um, that was uh, designed to keep those temperatures at a level to stabilize those temperatures that can go beyond 5000 degrees Fahrenheit. Now we're talking half the well, less than half the surface of the sun here. I mean, we're talking very, very hot temperatures, right? So what they did was is they came out with um, a method called regenerative cooling system. And what that is, is, is that they had designed in the uh, F1 engines, just now around the combustion chamber part, um, small, hundreds of small, fine little tubes that went on the outside of the combustion chamber within the engine. So when the fuel was going through, 70% of the fuel was pushed directly through the tubes on the outside of the combustion chamber, and 30% of the fuel was pushed through the combustion chamber itself. So that was 30%, yes. Okay, and the whole, the whole idea of that was is the uh, propellant that was going through the uh, hundreds of tubes on the outside of the combustion chamber was designed to absorb some of the thermal energy from the combustion chamber to keep it at a stabilized temperature to prevent the rocket itself from exploding. These were failing. And because they were failing, they weren't getting the thrust output that they originally designed. And actually, in several um, uh, cases, a lot of cases in the static testing they did on the ground, they had, they had explosions of these engines. So they were having real problems producing 1.5 billion pounds of thrust. Now, um, they had two unmanned launches of the Saturn V before they sent up a crew, two. And this is an important point, and I just want you to keep that point in mind. I'll go back to that in a second. 
The static testing that was done in the F1 engines over about three or four years, uh, several years actually, was about 70 hours total. Now that seems, that doesn't seem like a lot, but it actually seems adequate when you factor in that the life duration of the F1 engines in an actual launch is two minutes. When you factor that in, it's only two minutes, then the amount of static testing that was done seems, seems okay. But now here's where it gets very interesting. There was only two on-man launches of the Saturn V rocket using the F1 engines, of course, uh, for a total of four minutes before they put an actual crew on board. And in one of those launches, the second launches, they had a near catastrophic loss at the Saturn V. I mean, you can see it in the photos. In fact, I have one here, somewhere here. I don't have it right here handy, but you can see it in the photos. It was burning massive amounts of uh, kerosene. And the first, uh, the first stage of the Saturn V that was using the F1 engines used kerosene along with liquid, ox liquid oxygen, right? It was one of the few engines that used kerosene. And it was burning massive amounts of kerosene, which mean, meant that the uh, regenerative cooling system was breaking down. And they actually had to, if there had to been a crew on board, and this was Apollo 6 I'm talking about. So you had Apollo 4, which is the first launch of the Saturn V, and Apollo 6 was the second launch of the Saturn V. Both were unmanned, right? If there had to been a crew on board the Apollo 6 mission, um, the crew might have been killed. They would have at least had to abort the mission, abort before they even reached low Earth orbit. So they were having serious problems with the F1 engines of the Saturn V. And here's where it gets even more interesting. They went from fixing the problems, supposedly fixing the problems of the F1 engines of the Saturn V, to seven months later, setting up the first, the third, rather, um, Saturn V mission with a crew on board, not only to low Earth orbit, but to circumnavigate the moon. That was Apollo 8. They didn't land. They just went around the moon. Remember Apollo 8, right? And they supposedly did this in, uh, in seven months without, and I want to emphasize this, without any further testing of the F1 engines. That's, and then that's recorded information. That's recorded information. That's, that's, I talk about that. I sourced that in my book. That is a fact. The, and, and you look at aviation. Aviation, when you put a new plane out there, even though those planes have been tried and true and they're built on um, decades of technology going back, you know, decades, 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 right to the Wright brothers, you have one, you know, decade after, right? but they're built on that technology. So even they still put those aircraft through hundreds of hours of testing each aircraft. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second that NASA did the same thing because it would be just in uh, the, the cost would be astronomical to do hundreds of hours of testing on the F1 engines in flight. But what I am arguing is that they should have at least did comparable testing to the static testing they did on the ground and they didn't. And to further emphasize the point, I mentioned the Saturn 1B earlier. The Saturn 1B was a smaller version of the Saturn rocket. It had, um, 14 variations of launches, the configuration was slightly different, but they basically had 14 variations of launches, unmanned launches with its less powerful H1 engines, right? Um, before they put a crew on board for Apollo 7, the Saturn 1B was used in one Apollo mission that was Apollo 7. That's verified. That's not disputed. When you put all of it together, 
you have 70 hours of testing of static testing of the F1 engines, and you have a total of four minutes of in-flight testing or testing of the F1 engines and actual conditions. And NASA says that it fixed all the problems with the F1 engines they were having in Apollo 6. That is documented without any further testing and that they put a crew on board and that the rest of those Apollo launches from Apollo uh, uh, 7, sorry, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and of course, the last launch of Skylab worked perfectly. Smooth as butter. Not a problem. Smooth as butter. Yeah. I'm with that. With you, go ahead. No, real quick question: Do you even think um, that there were astronauts on, like, like the video footage of um, the launch of that spaceship going to the moon? And were there even astronauts on on that? Is that kind of even what you're getting at too? Yeah, uh, you're talking about Apollo missions specifically, yeah, right? Yeah, like w- yeah. were there even astronauts or did they just like, did they fake that too? Like people even boarding it? Like was it a yeah. man, like yeah, was it a um, manned spacecraft? Sure, like you're asking did mass astronauts actually go up to low Earth orbit at least? Yeah, Is that yeah, what ba- you're basically, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, I can't give a yes or no answer on that, but what I can do is say if there was one Apollo mission that was real, I would lean towards Apollo 7 because that used the Saturn 1B. Now, um, people say, well, Randy, I've seen the films of them floating around in space on the way to the moon and doing all kinds of things, of course. And I write about this in the second book. Um, Yes, those films are out there. We've all seen them. but that can be duplicated. Um, you know how they train astronauts anyway um, through the uh, through aircraft. They can simulate um, in zero gravity. It can even simulate one six gravity on lunar surface, which I had recently found out. And that, and I remember earlier I had mentioned that you know. But the only thing is they can only maintain that zero gravity in space for about thirty seconds, for as far as I know. But I mentioned earlier that the military has had photographic uh, and film um, techniques that are still classified to this very day and who knows what they were really capable of doing. So yes, I think most of the manned missions that we were seeing were faked uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. Yes, I do. I don't think there, there was definitely nobody when there were no humans that went beyond low earth orbit of that. I am positive. Because you, we haven't even talked so, about the radiation. And, and whenever you go into that specific, uh, there's two things real quick. One, um, I'm going to go back before Jesse asked you the question. The balls that NASA would have to have to send people into Earth with a rocket that had the amount of testing done to it is extremely large. I mean, at balls. that point, the populace should be upset. Yeah, the the amount of the the balls were big as fucking bull balls, man. At that point, to do that. Yeah. But the second yeah. point, the same guy who said that we are, I'm pretty sure it's the same guy who said that we the reason we haven't went to the moon in a long time is because we lost the technology. Oh, I, I lost my train of thought. Where we. I, I completely lost it. I think he's the same person who said that um, he said something along the lines of we can't even leave lower earth orbit. It was the same guy who said it in that interview that you were talking about. I know we can't think of his name, but he even said, Don Pettit. yeah, he even said that we can't even human beings have never even went past lower earth orbit. And this was after yeah. the moon landings. And, and just for like a layman real quick, lower earth orbit. Is that like where all the, the space stations are? 
basically, and all the satellites are floating. Yeah, and yeah, basically, I mean, Lower you're Earth still orbit, within the Earth's grasp to be like rotating with the Earth in some way. Is that lower yeah. Earth orbit? Okay, so I just Lord wanted to like orbit. clarify that because I wanted to get that straight in my own head. Sure. Well, you have a couple of things here. You have, um, for example, I'm just going to look for that while I'm talking here. You have, for example, um, you have parking orbit. So they, when the Apollo missions blasted off lower Earth orbit, you would have what is called a parking orbit, which would be about 100 miles. Um, so low Earth orbit would be anywhere between maybe 120 to 200 miles. And then you have above 200 miles, you would have um, medium Earth orbit and then high Earth orbit. So it basically goes in the increments. But yes, low Earth orbit is really anything that's about 200 miles in altitude. Um, if that's a circular orbit, I'm not talking about, um, you know, perigee or anything like that, just our apogee. I'm just talking about a circular orbit. We'd be about 200 miles. So, yeah. Do you and happen to, this is, this is digressing a little, it's a little random, but yeah. do you happen to know off the top of your head or if you have it there, what is, I'm just curious, do you know the geosynchronous orbit? Like what that distance is where like our satellites have to like, you know, if this satellite is positioned over the center of Texas, it will always be over the center of Texas. Like the satellites we use for uh, dish network and yeah. all that kind of stuff, what that uh, distance is from the earth. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, they're, they're very high. They can be up as where I think, um, well, GPS satellites, I know um, can be up as high as what 10,000 kilometers, what that is in miles. So yeah, it could be up about 15,000 miles. Oh, so it's, miles. It's, it's really up there. It's okay. It could be, yeah, yeah, absolutely, for sure. I mean, you also have, uh, here we go. Uh, here's, here's, I'm going to read the quote from uh, Dom Pettit. Um, and he, um, so I, got, I, got, I found the actual quote here, and this is the astronaut that you were talking about, Paul, right? So Don Pettit is a NASA astronaut who was on three missions, two on the ISS, the International Space Station, and one on the space shuttle. So I was right about that. He had this to say about the possibility of any future manned mission to the moon. And his quote is exactly this. I go to the moon in a nanosecond. The problem is we don't have that technology to do that anymore. We used to, but we destroyed that technology, and it's a painful process to build it back again, unquote. That's a, that's a loaded statement. Oh, yeah. That is a very loaded statement. And, and the other thing that I've noticed, too, is that you have other statements from astronauts. For example, Alan Bean. I've, I think he was on Apollo 12, if my memory serves me correct here. And he was asked by Bart Sabril in a press conference uh, that are some kind of conference that he was given um, that, you know, on, he was also in one of the Gemini programs too, and he tried to cover his tracks, and I'll bring that up in a second. But he was asked by Bart Sabril, um, how did you get through the, did you have any effects of radiation? Did you feel any effects of radiation when you went through the Van Allen belts on your way to the moon? And Alan, Alan Bean's reply was, well, I, uh, oh, I don't think we went out that far. I mean, and think about that. He says, I don't think we went out that far. And Bart Sabril pointed out, well, you had to go out that far and even further to get to the moon. And then he comes back and now me and goes, oh, yeah, you're right. We went out that far. Uh, no, I don't think so. No, no effects. And then later on, he tried to cover his tracks by saying that he was also on the Gemini missions. I think he was on the Gemini missions. And that, of course, they didn't go out that far. Gemini missions were um, a two-man crew, and that was a low-Earth orbit mission only. But, I mean, you know, he already let it out, right? 
So they themselves don't, don't know the full details because they forget the script. I think in, they're all reading a script. Buzz Aldrin's like the, the biggest case because it was like a year or two ago where he had that interview with like a third or fourth grader. And she asked, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and I'm sorry, I know he's a little bit senile, but what I'm saying is I don't want to waste Randy's time with, because uh, a lot of this. I, I hate that interview and I know exactly what you're talking I don't about. Hate so the, I many don't, people bring it up. And I don't I'm even, like, I don't even I hate, think that people misunderstand him and what he's actually saying. But he's consistently that. been doing that since he's ever even came off the, but what I'm saying is specifically, Randy, I don't even want to go down these roads yeah. because your last description of, of how you're talking about these F1 rockets and all that, that's all like new stuff to me that I've never even heard about. And I, and I love that I actually, shit, man. I agree with that. And I was going to say the one valid thing is whether you are, Hey, I think that we actually went or Hey, I think it was all fake either. Whether you're either side of the fence, I think it is a good idea to look at the math and the numbers and the stuff that you're talking about instead of like the photogrammetry. Like, don't look at the photos and the video and all that because, like, you called it a red herring earlier. It truly is for both sides, by the way. Like, whether you're arguing for or against it, don't... Man, photo and all that is so easy to, like, edit and change and everything. Like, it just... I I feel like if you're going to argue your side, whatever side it is, focus on the math, focus on the engineering side of things, not what photos and videos we've seen. That's well, like trying to show photos on, of Bigfoot. But, but hold on real quick. They're Photoshopped because they have to be. And that's also from a NASA spokesperson. Either way, but regardless. You know regar- what I'm saying? No, and no. That's, that's what I'm saying. Paul, People, you're talking about that. something. Uh, you're Regard- talking about something Regardless of that, the point is fo- photos is not the way to look. For you know sure. what I mean? Like, I agree. I agree. Look at the math. Sorry, Randy. I, 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 come on your show more often. I like to stir it up. It's yeah. A, it's a <laughs> oh, um, we always get one I, of us. One of us will end up arguing with Paul or each yeah, other it, at it, some point. It, it, it happens. happens every podcast. Well, I'll back you up on this um, a little bit, uh, uh, Johnny. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I. I mean, you raised some good points, Paul, about um, Buzz Aldrin. Um, I, I won't. I, I try to stay away from any direct criticisms of him for the simple reason. I mean, he has suffered depression and alcoholism over the last several decades. And if anybody, anybody in any family knows, that's serious shit. I mean, it's just serious stuff. I've, you know, um, I've had it in my own family. And I don't like what it does to people. I don't like what it does to people close to them. And the amount of pressure that he too was under, and I'm not making excuses for him because he lived a lie and he put forward a lie and he has to answer for that. But he also, you know, think about his programming that's breaking down and he screws up once in a while the amount of pressure that he's under and he knows he's living a lie and having to live a lie, um, that, that, that size lie all your life is, is, is going to take its toll on anyone. And um, I, I really don't take Buzz Aldrin seriously. I mean, at the same time, I won't, you know, I, I stay away from criticizing him to a point that interview you mentioned a few years ago was, yeah, it was a bit of a joke. Um, I have to admit that. Um, and we saw what he did to Bart, uh, Bart Sabril 20 years ago when he belted him, yep. right? Yep. And um, that, to me, is evidence of his programming breaking down and losing it. Um, Bart Sabril could maybe, maybe he'd be criticized for getting his face. Um, I'll give Buzz Aldrin a little bit of leeway on that. But at the same time, that was a very significant event when he hauled back and, and belted him. That showed that Bart Sabril was reaching some nerves there. He was reaching the truth. So um, that was a revealing, for me, that was a very revealing moment and said a lot that I, in my opinion, 
goes to um, um, establishing the deception around the Apollo moon missions. Let, let me ask you this. So all of these, and I'm not good with the names. I don't know the names other than like, I can name Buzz Aldrin, but that's about it. I don't know the names of astronauts. But in general, especially for the Apollo missions, especially for the timeline we're talking about back in the, the late 60s, early 70s and everything, um, are they actual, based on the theory, are they actual astronauts or are they actors? Like, do they actually know the science and why would, because if you're going to fake all this, why would you not hire the people who are the best at acting and know what they're doing in that aspect of playing this ruse and this facade and everything? Why would you not get the best at that instead of getting the best astronauts who aren't actually going to do the mission and now you have to teach them how to act? Like you said, they're all military. Sorry, but go ahead, Randy. You see, that's, well, it's, a, it's a good question. And my immediate response to that question would be is that they did need somebody, they did need people with technical backgrounds, but with the image to go with it. If you remember, um, they built up the image of Neil Armstrong as a National Guard pilot. I think it was a National Guard pilot. I know he had some involvement in the military, but especially Buzz Aldrin. Uh, Buzz Aldrin in Korea, you know, uh, apparently had shot down the enemy and it was, it was actually videotaped film and they made, you know, they're, they're building the narrative for years later. I think these people were actually in mind years before the Apollo missions were announced. And so they did have to have some um, people with technical backgrounds. So you needed real people who out. were already credible. Sorry? Sorry. So you, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. So you needed oh, yeah, real people who were already credible, basically. Yeah, yeah, credible, but credible with an aviation background. They needed that to sell the narrative because the people remember back then there was no engineering school for there's no aerospace school for uh, um, for rockets. I mean, it was all new. It was brand new. I mean, you know, a lot of these uh, engineers that were working on the Saturn V were basically um, aeronautical engineers. And they had to learn all this themselves. There was no school to go to back then. So they were building the narrative and they needed those ready made, you know, the all American and, and don't get me wrong. I, I, I like America. Uh, to, to me, it's what it symbolizes. I like a lot. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm, you know, I'm up here. I'm a Canadian, right? So I, I like America, but it did symbolize that all American sort of image, you know, and, and uh, the clean cut, you know, aviator hero, um, and, you know, as, as it turns out, long story short, we'll get into this some other time. They didn't really need aviation skills to go into space, as it turned out, uh, uh, as, as one of the astronauts who was a scientist uh, proved, right? But it did fit the image, the narrative at that time. So, yeah, you know, you can get actors in there who would be probably a lot better at it. But keep in mind, these were also military pilots and they were very controlled and very scripted. And but there were cracks forming even back then about some of their behavior, um, you know. So um, I mean, there's a rumor, and this is just a rumor, okay. And I like to put rumors out there because it gets people thinking. But it's just a rumor; I can't substantiate it. It is a rumor that one of the astronauts was actually caught having an affair. One of the Apollo astronauts was ca caught having an affair with somebody else's wife. The problem is, is that at the time he was having the affair, he was supposed to be on a lunar surface. Honey, I wasn't sleeping with her. I was on the moon. Yeah, <laughs> I was on the moon. I, was on I the like moon, that. Right? So, 
Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, and uh, for all the people out there, they're going to attack me for saying that I can't substantiate it. It's just a rumor. So if it's a rumor, I'll say that. Um, but you know, um, that, that's exactly what that was really about. The all American, you know, air force hero and military pilot. And these were, these were, these were skilled pilots. I mean, these were test pilots, right? And these, these were, these, these people were very, very skilled in what they did. Right. Um, but you know, um, how did that translate into actually flying an aircraft? Well, that's another our spaceship rather, but that's another issue. That's, that's another topic for another day, but yeah. So it would be better to have the real thing and then train them as opposed to getting actors and then trying to train them on that. Gotcha. The reverse would be a little bit more difficult. Well, I think, and, and to, to Johnny's point, and again, a lot of people already know this, but you can go back to whenever Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, and they all came back from that first mission. They were quarantined for however long, but whenever they were able to actually talk to the press, and if you watch that specific interview with them, you watch their demeanor, you look at them, you can tell they're not actors, but you can tell, like, dude, if... I just came back from the moon and I was the first person on the moon. Like I would be ecstatic. I would be, you know, I'd be on cloud nine, dude. When I went to nationals in debate, when I was in high school, it was the best thing that had ever happened to me. Granted, that's nowhere near the scale of going to the moon and coming back safely to earth, but it was the greatest thing in my life at that time. They should have been partying like Travis Kelsey at. Yeah, exactly. Like whoever won the Super Bowl, like to me, but when you specifically watch that interview, when they're being interviewed by the media, something looks fishy and it looks completely obvious. Common sense would tell you as a human being, like something is off here, in my opinion. I want to see the video. I've actually never seen that video. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I watched it. Um, it's about an hour and a half. It wasn't easy to sit through, I'll tell you. Um, it was the most depressing uh, press conference I've ever seen. Um, and that's including press conferences about actual real catastrophes. Um, you know, I've heard, I've heard the uh, NASA proponents, I like to call them, I'm being kind when I call them NASA proponents, they'll come back and say, well, they did smile a couple of times. And you see, if you go to this time here, he smiles. Frame uh, 32, overall, he smiled. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, but overall, it was the most depressing thing you could ever watch. As somebody, as somebody uh, put it aptly, you know, oh, the joy, right? Um, these people should have been jumping up and down and you know, on the stage doing somersaults and we did it, we did it, we did it. And, you know, um, but there was actually even some, some conflict going on there between some of the astronauts because some of them and Neil Armstrong a couple times tripped up on what he was supposed to say and what he shouldn't have said. Yep. And you could see it. There was a moment there where um, uh, Michael Collins um, was kind of correcting him and saying how, uh, well, I didn't see that. And basically saying, you didn't see it either. And it's interesting that in the transcripts of that press conference, it's reversed. Uh, I won't go into the details of it right now in our time, but um, the transcripts are reversed to uh, in, in terms of a couple of the comments that were made to give the impression that it wasn't this astronaut that was saying it was this astronaut that was saying it. So there's deception going on there as well. Um, but you can clearly see that they had the weight of the world on their shoulders in that press conference, especially... Neil Armstrong, I think out of all of them, he was the one that was really wearing it the most. Because remember, he was the first man on the moon. His name is associated with it. And I might add, there isn't very many still photos of Neil Armstrong on the lunar surface. Any still photos you see, you know, I think there's two of them that are actually kind of dark and muddy a bit. And any other day, uh, frames you see are coming from film. He wouldn't pose. 
right? So there is there, his behavior is very interesting to look at. His is the one I find the most intriguing. Um, I would put Buzz Aldrin second. Michael Collins loved it. I think he just loved the limelight, right? But um, Neil Armstrong's behavior is very, very interesting. And, and I mean, as I said earlier, he basically became a recluse. So I think the behavior in that press conference speaks volumes about the weight of the world on their shoulders at that time, because they knew they were going to live their whole lives with this lie. They had no way out. They were under orders. Even, even, you know what, even though he resigned, you're still at orders. You're once your military. Oh yeah. I mean, he'd, he'd die if he were to even come, if, if just, this is all, if this is all real, yeah. I'm just for the point, if yep. this is all real, as in, you know, we never went to the moon, then yeah, that he would die before he ever even got close to disclosing yep. that information. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, and, and not just him. I mean, because you can anyone. It's involved. easy to yeah, exactly. It's easy to stop one person. You can be like, "I'm so righteous that I will tell the truth." But when they also threaten your family and your friends and everybody you know, it's a little harder to do that. Yeah, absolutely, and that's another fact too that we need to keep in mind. And I mean, also, it's important to remember that uh, these that deception also hurt their families and blew their families apart or some of their families apart as well. So it wasn't a walk in the park for any of these people involved. And again, I want to be clear to everyone and the viewers, I'm not making excuses for these astronauts because they have to answer for the fact that they participated. But at the same time, it it isn't always black and white. And I try to look at it in, uh, I try to sort of look at it from different angles if I, if I can put it that way. But the bottom line is, is that they did participate in a deception and that deception needs to be answered for. But, but you have the empathy for them at the same time because you realize the position that they were put into and it's almost just like that kind of fell into their lap. And next thing you know, this crazy, you know, government power is like knife to their throat, basically, probably in a bunch of scenarios. Like, what would you do kind of, kind of thing? Like that level of empathy, like, yeah. Anybody it was going to happen to someone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then you're just kind of like, well, shit, man. Like, you know, it is, yeah. it is what it is. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely something that, uh, I mean, it's easy for us to say, I guess, that, well, no, I wouldn't participate in that. And I'd like to know that I wouldn't. Um, at the same time, when we put it in a context of the times back then, the Cold War, you're doing a service for your country, you're going to inspire millions of Americans, um, this is going to help nationalist, nationalism, it's, you know, it's all about hubris, all that. I mean, the American flag, son, do it for your country type of thing. Um, I think a lot of people would have done it. And, you know, let's not forget, they were probably well paid, not overtly, but, you know, indirectly. And, you know, so, I mean, there's that aspect of it as well, but hey, why wouldn't anybody, of course, you're going to be paid for this, right? But yeah, I I mean, factor in that they too were part of the, um, I call it mass mind control in terms of the Cold War, which I now believe that's what it was, was nothing more than a, a mass mind control program. Um, I'm not, I mean, if you looked at that, the, the Soviet Union and the Americans never took one single shot at each other. Not one. They fought through proxy wars, yes, but they never fired a single shot at one another. That says a lot. And, and, and I, I wonder if it was all scripted. I mean, you got half the, uh, the Soviet Union hierarchy now that's infiltrated uh, American um, academic institutions and political institutions in the United States, um, as well as China, but that's another story. So yeah, there was, there was a lot more going on. The depth of this goes very far. The rabbit hole goes very far. 
And um, there isn't one easy um, answer to all of this, but there is a lot of discussion and theories around it for sure. I mean, I really wanted to ask, and I'm not, I'm not, I was, I really wanted to ask questions about uh, Bill Casing and his whole, and I'm sure you've heard of him if you've, if you're any kind of involved in the moon conspiracy and everything, because he's kind of considered the father of this whole conspiracy. He started this, he was the first quote unquote whistleblower of the entire ordeal. So, um, yeah, no, I'll talk about Bill Casing right now. Now, um, we've kind of gone over time. Uh, we could talk for maybe 10 more minutes. Yeah, we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll, and, yeah. we yeah. can cut it off here anytime. Sure. Don't want to hold yeah. you up. Okay, so, let, yeah, let's go for uh, about 10 more minutes. Um, Bill Casing's a very interesting um, person in all of this. I happen to think that he's very, um, Bill Casing is very, how shall I put it, genuine. He's very genuine. Um, I've looked into Bill Casing. Uh, a bit of background on Bill Casing. He worked for Rocketdyne. And Rocketdyne, by the way, is the corporation that built the F1 engines. And he was hired by Rocketdyne in 1958. So he saw firsthand, he analyzed the data of the F1 engines. And he was disgusted by what he was seeing because the F1 engines was, were, uh, were not performing to specifications at that time. And that's very significant because up to 1963, they were like, you know, uh, three, four years away from a moonshot. And these F1 engines were not performing. And he has alleged that the F1 engines data were um, falsified, fudged, the numbers were fudged. So um, he left in disgust in 1963, he resigned. And uh, contrary to what a lot of the NASA uh, proponents will say, he was nothing more than, um, you know, a paper pusher. He was more than that. He was hired for his skills. He was good at analyzing data. He was collecting that data, and that was his job. Um, Of course, he came out with his book in 1977, which was the first book, you're right. And he basically alleged in the book that, the Saturn V launched. It was a stripped-down version of the Saturn V, basically empty. There was no crew on board, and if there was a crew, um, it was you know, um, if there was a crew, there was nothing else on board. There was no lunar module. But uh, he's basically saying a stripped-down version of the uh, Saturn V that they had substituted the F1 engines for other another engine. Nobody would know the difference. I mean, they can be camouflaged. And that that was used to sell the narrative because you have to keep in mind that, you know, there was about a million people there that day on Apollo 11. Something did blast off that day. I mean, there was a rocket that went up, Mm -hmm. but was it the Saturn V in every aspect that they were talking about? And according to Bill Casey, no, it's not. And now his work is being validated by um, a couple of Russian scientists that have come forward because no American scientist is going to touch this. And they published papers on the Alice.com website. And Alice.com is devoted to the deception around the Apollo missions. And he has done, um, he's, he's a scientist and he's done a thorough examination of the F1 engine. He's basically validated exactly what Bill Casing has said. Now, they differ a little bit in the method. But the bottom line is the same. The Saturn V did not leave the launch pad as, as, uh, as a 3,000-ton rocket, possibly 2,000 tons, maybe even less than that. It had no lunar module on board, and, um, and, and as far as I'm concerned, had no crew on board either. It was far too dangerous to put a crew on top of um, a rocket that had 
a total of four minutes testing before they put a man crew on which board. that that part alone is still so yeah. insane yeah, yeah that's yes. that's and there's no yeah, way I've that never heard that that's, i'm trying to think to myself back then like i guess you wouldn't have to inform the public but i feel like during the time when all this is going on the public could have somehow known whether or not they were doing tests and stuff and i feel like the populace in general would be outraged that you're putting people in this rocket that hey you guys haven't like fixed this shit yet or you say you fixed it but you haven't tested it out like i don't know that that whole part i've never heard that part before and that's crazy to me and that's the beautiful thing they never even had to answer that question because they successfully went to the moon yeah you're right right. it all gets shrouded by and the other thing to keep in mind too is back then 50 years ago nobody had access to personal computers like we do nobody had True. there's no um, internet there's no yeah yeah. none of that everyone still had had a telly though everyone still had a telly though yeah, everyone had to tell you, and that was, you know, Walter Conkright told you what was going on, and, you know, yeah. that's the mainstream. Well, we had ABC, CBS, and NBC, and that's where we relied on our information. And after the Saturn V rocket Very reliable uh, sources. Off, once it got past its 50-mile uh, altitude, out of range of cameras, nobody knows where that rocket went. I believe it went, the whole thing went right into the ocean, but that's another story we won't have time to get into that now, but that's another story. But nobody knows. We only know from the mainstream narrative from Walter Conkright at that time, who was narrating this, where that rocket went. So we had to rely on NASA through the mainstream media to get our information. Nobody had access to the information that we do now. So it was very easy to keep that secret. Um, yeah, a million people were there watching the launch of Apollo 11, but they don't know where it went after it was out of range of camera, out of camera range, out of media camera range. Man, we're going to have to have you on again, man. There's so much stuff that I don't even think we even touched or even got close there's to. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot. No, I enjoyed it. There's, there's, a, there's a lot. Um, there's uh, a lot in book one we haven't even touched on. So, yeah, like I said earlier, you're not going to get all this information in an hour. It's going to take a while. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I want to bring up where to find this book. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, and, and again, yeah, it's all up to you, man, on your time and stuff like that. Where I mean, but there's, I mean, People's attention spans are usually like an hour, especially when it comes well, to. Well, while yes. you were outside too, he was saying he, he was like, yeah, 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 for yeah, sure. And, so yeah. sorry, man. Um, so where can people find you? One and where can and 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 that's very important. But the, I feel like the second most important thing about this would be where can people go minus YouTube to find this type of information about the Apollo moon landings. Um, I'd like to have uh, some links to put other than your book. If you could send me those via email. Yeah. There's um there's a couple of researchers I would like to mention. One I mentioned was Scott Henderson. Um, there's another uh, researcher I want to mention, and he's highly recommended. He's the UK distributor for Nexus magazine, and his name is Marcus Allen. And uh, uh, full disclosure here, ne- Nexus magazine did a review of my first book, and they now have done a review of my second book. But I had the opportunity of meeting with Marcus Allen um, uh, in a stopover uh, when I was in the UK uh, um, a couple of years ago. And I had a chance to sit down and have dinner with him for five hours. And he's a wealth of information. He's devoted the last 25 years of his life to researching the Apollo moon missions. He's available for interviews. I highly recommend you get him on here. Um, he is a wealth of information. A um, couple of other, uh, Nexus Magazine is world, world famous. It's actually based in Australia and it's distributed in Europe, UK, and, and North America. And the other one is um, Scott Henderson, who I mentioned, and there's a few others, Emmanuel E. Garcia, MD. He writes about the psychological aspect as well as some of the technical aspects. And that's on the allus.com website. 
Robert Williams, he actually does my video. So when I make a video at my own YouTube channel, but then he takes that and he puts it on his own YouTube channel and he enhances it. And, you know, I'm not always, you know, the best to come in when it comes to uh, special effects on YouTube videos. So he does that for me. He's brilliant too. And Phil Kautz is, uh, Phil Kautz is another one who's a physicist and does a lot of good work. These are all names that, um, that I have um, access. Now, in terms of going to books, there are many books on the Apollo missions, on the Apollo moon mission hoax. I recommend to the viewers, you know, if you really want to get involved in this, you really want to find out the answer, read the official books on the official version of the uh, Apollo missions, because a lot of really fantastic nuggets come out of those. You have scientists that, that indirectly tell you that it's amazing that these admissions even happen. It's a miracle that nothing happened on the way there, you know, and they're basically hinting that wink, 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 it didn't happen. Um, they're not going to come out and say that because they have careers to think about, but they more than say it um, outside of NASA, but in the the context of the official version. So it really, you have to read both sides of this. You have to read the official books on the missions, the official narrative, and you have to, uh, as well as the, um, the uh, books on the hoax aspect, the conspiracy aspect of it. You put the two together. You can't just read one side. You have to read both sides. And that's why it takes me so long to write a book. I'm writing a third book. And uh, it's going to take me a couple of years. As someone who but, always says you should get multiple sources, I highly appreciate the fact that you mentioned yeah. you should read the other side of things too. Yeah. Because that's something yes. we always push. Or I mean, me specifically, we always push yeah. on this podcast. Like, don't just listen to one side. Like, do the research yourself. Get both sides of the story and use your own knowledge to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's important. And, you know, another thing is that I, I always get comments of you're not um, an aerospace engineer, you're not a rocket scientist and all this, and you don't have to be if you're prepared to um, spend the time and look through it and go through the details. Um, anybody can reason this out for themselves. But again, the emphasis being you should read both sides, don't restrict yourself to just one side, because then you become biased. You got to look at both sides and then decide for yourself and then go from there. But I found some of the most interesting things I have found that actually point towards the conspiracy of the Apollo missions was from the official versions themselves. Um, the narrative from NASA and outside of NASA that's in support of NASA and the Apollo missions. I found some very interesting stuff. I've, I've documented that in both books. Um, so yeah, I recommend read both sides of this if you want to get at the truth. The truth is not easily accessible. You have to spend the time. It's like anything else. You have to spend the time researching. You have to want to get into the details. That's where the answer is. It's in the details. It, it can be a long slog, uh, believe me, but that's where the answer is. When can people start buying your second book? The book is out now. It's cool. on Amazon. Um, I just put it out there, I think, uh, a couple of months ago. And uh, we were in a big move there. So I wanted to get it out before we moved. And uh, so the book is out now. I'm, I'm now researching three, part three of the book. Um, I'm gonna, that's going to take me a couple of years because a lot of research has to go into it. And I'll start writing it next year. And I could be found on uh, YouTube. I have my own YouTube channel, Randy Walsh. Just put in Randy Walsh, it'll come up. And as in terms of contact information, the, um, my email address, as you know, is in the book and uh, can also be found at, uh, on Facebook at, um, at author Randy Walsh as well. So um, for people that check out my YouTube channel, 
Um, I have a few videos on there. I sometimes will put a video out, an update on, you know, what research I'm doing so far. I'll talk about, I'll expand more on the books that I'm, that I'm writing, uh, book one and book two. And those, sometimes I'll put a link in the bottom of that because it'll send you over to uh, Robert Williams' YouTube channel because he enhances the uh, visual on the videos that I do. So he does really, really good work as well. So um, yeah, anybody wants to contact me, the email's in the book and they can contact me through that. Cool. Randy, I appreciate you, man. I'm going to leave you with one last question. And if it's going to be a too long of an answer, just let me know and we'll save it for next time. Sure. What are your thoughts on Crow Triple Seven's Lunar Wave? Lunar Wave. I haven't paid. I haven't actually really been. Give me. Um, give me an idea of uh, where he's coming from. I haven't had a lot a chance to pay attention. I, oh, to so I, I didn't want to go. A I, bad, that's a bad question. Yeah, yeah. it's it's that's not. It's, in, in their eyes, it's a bad question, but it's not to me. So it's very important yeah. to me. Um, I think it's very interesting. I'll send you the video that Crow shot himself. And then, you know, sure. we can maybe talk about it next podcast, but I, I didn't sure. know if you'd saw it or not. So I was just curious. So, well, I don't even know if he's pro or against the conspiracy. Um, I haven't he's... really watched him. I know that my name has now popped up on some of the, um, the, the show websites, if I can put it that way, where they're trying to discredit the book. I expect that. And that's all, that that's always that... going to happen. Yeah. And that actually is a compliment because it means your book is getting attention. So uh, I'm not bothered at all by that. I get the personal attacks, which is kind of funny. Uh, Doesn't bother me at all. Um, Which is ridiculous. You got to have thick skin if you're in this game, right? You're not wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I get attacked. I sometimes go on YouTube and take them on myself and uh, it's kind of fun. Um, I have the usual six NASA shills that like to come at me and it's... uh, it's actually, you know, and I feel like sharpening my skills online, I'll do that. And I don't pay a lot of attention to them. I won't get into it too much with them. It's a waste of time because they try to drag you down, right? Yep. So, but once in a while, I'll get involved in that. But that, that that's all part of the territory. Uh, I don't mind at all. Uh, everybody is entitled to their point of view. That's right, man. Well, Randy, yep. thanks for joining Talk Junkies, man. It's been a pleasure. It's been an honor to have you on. Greatly appreciate your time and all the research that you do for this topic, man. It's been It's been a pleasure, man. Yes, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on, and uh, I look forward to the next time. Cool. Us as well, my man. You have a good night. All right. You too now. Cheers. Okay. Bye-bye. Cheers. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Randy Walsh. Uh, check his book out. You know, the links will be in the description below. This one will be on YouTube in full full format, same with on BitChute and all that stuff. It's a great conversation, man. I mean, Started off a little, um, I don't know. It, it was if you're putting it on YouTube at the very beginning of the podcast, you might bleep out those two words you said. One star of the C, one the the oh the yeah, double yeah, X yeah, and yeah. the and the, yeah. the pandemic thing. You yeah. know? No, no, I know for sure. I'll definitely have to bleep that out. No, but, I mean uh, you really will. That sucks. That's what anyway, YouTube is. Anyways, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully you guys enjoyed this uh, this podcast. Uh, a lot, a lot of the stuff we talked about has been things that I've already known, but then Randy did bring in some new information that I've never really heard before. And I think that that was fantastic. It was interesting. It was intriguing. And it's things that, you know, I need, I myself need to look into and look up those things and, and, you know, get my own validation. I think whenever you bring up conspiracy theory, you typically run into what the stereotypical conspiracy theory individual is, you know, which is Randy Walsh is not that. Yeah. Yeah. He is not. He is not that at all. No. He is very well informed, very well spoken. He knows his shit. Is and I mean, like I was already like we talked about it before. Like, where do you lean as far as this conspiracy theory goes? And everybody had a number. All I know is that he just pumped up my number even more. Where I'm like, oh man, yeah, 
you know, for sure. He's very, um, very well-knowledged individual. Well, I was going to say, and that's the biggest thing, too, is that I feel like I have, man, I have not, respect isn't the wrong, the right word, but, like, when someone is a conspiracy theorist and they talk about multiple conspiracy theories, you lose my attention because you're just going after what is popular. But when you are focused on one idea, hey, I am strictly sticking with space, I am sticking with the Apollo missions, I am sticking with the moon landing, all of this, this is what I'm focused on. He's not talking about... He didn't bring up aliens. Yeah, he didn't bring up aliens, flat earth, all these other things that are in the same field, by the way. They are all still involved space, let alone all the other crazy conspiracy stuff about Illuminati and all this. He didn't go into any of that, even the ones that are closest to the moon landing like aliens and whatnot and Bill is or Bob Lazar and all this. Like I wanted to ask go about Bob Lazar, but there was, there was no way that I was going to try to yeah. branch off into that. But, but my, my favorite aspect of it though, that I think that really hit home for me is the fact that he avoided the traditional man. Look at this blurry image of Sasquatch. Look at this image of the flag on the moon waving when there's no wind or whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'm None so of tired of those arguments because, like I said earlier, on both sides, you can disprove it. Yeah. You can always disprove it on both sides when it comes to video images and stuff like that. And I love the fact that he focused on the, and I mean, that's why you should probably read his book, but focuses on the, like, the, uh, the F1 rockets and all this and just, like, the actual science behind it, man. When you can put science into your argument and math, like, I'm all for it. That was awesome, man. Randy, thanks for coming on, man. The best thing you guys can do for this video, we're on BitChute now. Um, again, we're on all platforms. Is just share this with your friends, your family. Send it out there if you all want. All platforms. Grinder. Yeah. yeah. No, not Grinder yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it, I would appreciate it. I don't know about Johnny and Jesse. I think that they would, too. It would just be an honor if you guys just shared our link. You don't have to. Just continue to listen to us each and every single week if you want. Um, subscribe. Hit that bell notification to all our junkies out there. Stay fly and ring the bell.